guys. Welcome to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. I'm Kelly. I'm your wine explorer here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am chatting with people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for the reviews and the feedback. I love hearing that you guys are listening, enjoying the episodes, and meeting the people that we have on the show. So thank you so much. Hope you all had a happy Halloween, however strange and different it may have been for you this year, and happy November. This week's episode features someone who's already been mentioned on the podcast multiple times as friends of former guests, but she is a force in the food and wine world here in Atlanta, but has a tremendous following around the world. I actually did not meet her in wine, though. We work together in our full-time non-wine life in public health, and we almost sit next door cubicles when that was something that we did in a pre-COVID world. So I am excited for you all to meet in this week's episode, Song Hee Lee. She is a writer, she's a chef, and she's an epidemiologist with a PhD in human nutrition. She was born and raised in Korea, and she has studied traditional Korean royal court cuisine, and she brings that to Atlanta, but also all around the world from her pop-ups and food experiences and events. She brings her unique perspective on wine and food combinations, and she's going to talk a lot about that in this week's episode. So follow her on Instagram at Korean Fusion. Hope you really enjoyed this episode, and I hope it inspires you to try some unique wine and food pairings the next time you get a chance. Cheers. Thank you. Talk to you soon. It is so good to to be with you. Like, cheers to you. Happy happy Friday. We're recording this on a Friday. You have been mentioned by many other guests of the show. So you are, in that sense, you're a friend of the show already. So thank you for being here. I mean, I heard, and so and it's always really sweet when people mention me. So yeah, and I, I miss them. <laughs> but you're thought of a lot, and that just says a lot about who you are for Atlanta and like the wine industry and the food lovers. Like you're a name that people know. So I feel honored to have you on the show today. But first of all, what are you drinking? Because actually, you are the first guest that I am drinking with because it's Friday. Well, I'm glad I chose this wine because I can definitely talk about this wine for a long time. I'm drinking um, Domaine Chapelle Beaujolais Village 2019 right now. And uh, I actually wore my Gamay shirt in honor of Beaujolais. <laughs> really juicy, delicious. I'm just crushing it right now without anything. But I think it'll be really good with like, charcuterie or like just, you know, ham and cheese sandwich or like mac and cheese. It's just really food-friendly, delicious wine. I'm loving it right now. And you have a shirt to match. I mean, good grief. This is perfect. You <laughs> And I do think of you with Beaujolais. I know that you have often recommended that. It's such a food-friendly wine. And so, yes, excellent choice. Also, you're friends with them. Like this all, this all makes sense to me. This is exactly the type of vibe I get from your wine and food adventures is that you're friends with them. It all goes together. It all makes sense. So this is perfect. Today I'm drinking a wine from Virginia, actually a Viognier. Um, okay. Yeah. I, uh, well, it's like the last day of Virginia wine month in October. So I'm doing that. Um, but it's actually a winery I used to work at and they at the time did not grow Viognier, but it's more of a recent, uh, crop for them. And so this is my first time trying my old wineries Viognier. So here I am with you, like enjoying that, which is fantastic. Lovely. Well, cheers to that. Chin chin. Chin chin. And that is such a great way to get a flavor for what you're all about. I mean, I have so many questions I want to ask you. I feel like you're somebody who is so influential and so interesting. What a lot of the listeners might not know, though, is that I actually met you not in wine. And it all goes back to the days of when we worked in person and I could look over my cubicle and I could see you. <laughs> yep, that's right. Two cubicles over. Two cubicles over working in public health, two wine and food loving ladies in Atlanta. But you're a colleague of mine. You're someone I look up to for everything that you do. So I can't wait to hear 
more about this, but you are kind of one of those people that does a lot of things. You're a chef, you're a cookbook author, you're a wine fairy, you educate people all the time. So what came first out of that long list of things, in addition to being an epidemiologist and all of that, what came first in the list of outside of professional life? I definitely think food came first because it was something that I always gravitated towards even as a child. But in terms of like wine, I think I followed people. So food and people and then ultimately wine, it kind of was like this trifecta. And it is who I am now. Like without any one of them, I am nothing. And I'm appreciating that more in 2020 because it is really what's holding me sane. I couldn't agree more with that. Also super beautiful that it is people that kind of drew you into wine. I know that you have such a presence with your with your food knowledge and your your cooking so much and I love that. Do you think that there was a pretty direct transfer of knowledge when it comes to your cooking background? How does that translate to your palate in wine? Was that kind of immediate or do you think that was something that has developed? Well, as a child, my mother and I would play this game. We, whenever we like dine out, my mom and I would try to figure out what's in it. And we will re- try to recreate that at home. So we always had pretty decent palate. And, you know, I think because of that exposure and constant way of like thinking and I don't know, I just thought food was so beautiful. And the reason being is no one can take it away from you once it's consumed. It becomes part of you. And that was like something that I took away from enjoying food. And therefore, everything I eat, I will cherish and remember and make it meaningful. And so, yeah, food definitely came first. I definitely do think I am gifted and privileged in that I was exposed to a lot of food. My mother made sure I would never pick on anything. Well, granted, I never did. I'm very open-minded when it comes to food. And with education and nutrition, I chose to study nutrition because my parents wouldn't let me become a chef. So it's a long story in a sense, like a very classic Asian household. And, you know, I didn't grow up here. I grew up in a very traditional Korean home in Korea. Both my parents being professors, like they were expecting me to become an academic. So when I said I wanted to become a chef, they said like never in a million years. So next best thing was for me to study food and nutrition. And, you know, I think about this a lot because I have to question, did I waste waste my time, you know, getting my PhD in nutrition and blah, blah, blah. I definitely don't think so because it definitely made me who I am now, right? Like really critically looking at what is going on, even in the food world, let alone like academia. So I don't regret that. However, I do feel like I have a lot more to learn so that I can stage myself shoulder to shoulder with people that I respect in food and wine world. Wow. What an incredible journey that must have been to have this choice of, I can't do exactly what I'm kind of setting my mind and my heart to do, but I'm going to get something very adjacent. And yet in the end, it ends up feeding in a whole new way, a complementary vision of the industry that you've now entered. Like the moment I got my PhD and I, you know, like in academia, I worked 24 seven every day. It really burnt me out. And at, you know, my job, nine to five, that whole concept that something I never understood it existed, mainly because both my parents are academics, right? Like I always watched them always work. So when I came home at 5 p.m., like I had nothing to do and it made me depressed a little bit. Like I have so much time in this world. What the hell am I going to do? And so, And that's why my cookbook, Everyday Korean, came about because I loved cooking. I had so much time. I was like, okay, I may as well write a book about it. 
And that's basically how I started food seriously because I finally had time. And my parents wouldn't argue with me anymore now that I actually have a PhD. And granted, they, they thought when I wanted to do cooking, they were concerned that quote unquote blue collar job in a sense that, oh, you're going to be physically tired. And as a parent, I guess they want their daughter to be treated like a princess. I don't fault them for it. However, they were like, okay, oh, you're writing a cookbook. That's more like academic. Okay. like That's like published author. Like that's authorship right there. There you go. Yeah. And I think that's what convinced them that, oh, maybe her cooking is not so bad after all. As I was recipe testing, I had so much food at home. There's so much I could eat. I had to invite my friends over. They would, you know, taste it on my behalf and give all the criticism and what have you. And that's how it all began when friends started to ask me to cook for their special events. And my book came out, which was a great excuse to like throw pop-ups. But mind you, I started doing pop-up because of my affinity towards wine, not because of food. Sommeliers were the ones who reached out to me to do pop-ups in Copenhagen, London, Paris, and you know, Austria because they found it so interesting that I'm pairing their wines with Korean food, which to them was foreign and unusual. And only when I did all of that, culinary world, world kind of finally picked up and then I finally was able to do pop-up for my food, food food, you know, like not wineable food. No if, way. You know, yeah. Oh, that is so beautiful. So how were they finding you? Was this on social media? Was this because of the sales of the cookbook? Like, I'm fascinated that you were looked at of like, wow, she's a chef who's doing cool things with food that also twists the wine in a way that maybe we don't see as often. How did they find you? Well, I had my Instagram um, prior to cookbook coming out because I really wanted to gauge understanding of general public, their interest in certain recipes of Korean cuisine. And I kind of use it as that resource. And at one point it kind of blew up and became more popular. And around that time I started drinking natural wine and started to pair Korean food that many people don't know about because it's not brugogi or, you know, Korean barbecue, japchae, bibimbap, because there's a lot more to it in Korean cuisine than all of that. And so I think that's how people got interested. Sommeliers knew very well about the wines I was drinking, but not so familiar with the food or the ingredient or the flavor profile that I was presenting on Instagram. And that's how all the conversation started. Now, why did I do that? I was really appalled by the fact that a lot of classically trained sommeliers, when you were to like walk into a, a wine shop and say, oh, I'm going to go to Korean barbecue restaurant. Can you recommend me a wine? And trust me, nine out of 10 will say, oh, Korean food is spicy. So like here is Riesling or Gorshaminer. Like that really made me so upset because it showed how little they knew about the cuisine and how their, their ignorance towards the cuisine. There are certain dishes in Korean cuisine that could be paired beautifully with one of the fanciest burgundy white wine, you know? And so I really wanted to portray that. And it was so interesting to me because the way Psalms think versus how chefs think, it's very different. And so for me as a chef, if I use that word loosely, I know food more than wine. I don't know a lot about wine. So whenever I opened a bottle of wine, it opened doors for me to create a flavor profile that may be complementary or even, you know, a little contrasty, but still interesting. Like I would be able to create a dish that I think will go well with this said wine 
but with a Korean flair. So that was like my thing for the longest time. I loved doing that, which is a complete reverse to most, uh, most sommeliers, right? Like psalms would be given this dish that chef created. And then because of their knowledge of wines, they go through with like all the directories of like wine knowledge and then find the perfect wine to go well with the, the food. I was the opposite. You were flipping that of you knew the the flavor profile of wine in a whole different way because you were relating it to the food. Like it was like it was complementary to the food, and that's how you were dissecting the wine. That is so interesting to me, and it really speaks to that that food first approach that you have. But also, it opens your mind to not or not having to fit into a certain box of what wine goes with which dish because you didn't really have any box to fit in. You didn't need to. You could totally explore all kinds of wines with that. Yeah. And I usually tell people I only started drinking um, starting, what, 2013. I was completely sober when I was getting my PhD. Seriously, um, no beers, no cocktail hours, no. like nothing. No. Okay. Like not even tiramisu because I am like all in or nothing kind of person. So PhD was intense and I realized like, oh, like it's either going to be a degree or alcoholism. It was like, oh yeah, sober yep. or go all in because you're an all in person, which speaks to the caliber of like your academic pursuit is that that's how you approach even your academics. It's like all in making choices like that to really do the best version of yourself for the task at hand. Like this shows commitment. I'm really impressed. Yeah, I don't know moderation. So <laughs> I didn't drink at all for about four years, but I always loved food. And for fancy food, it's almost always wine pairings. So I promised myself the day I submit my dissertation, I'm going to have a glass of champagne and only drink wine and only drink that makes me happy. Like never to get, never to drink to get drunk. And there were eye-opening experiences which led me to have a better understanding with wine. And I think those were very monumental. When you speak to those experiences, is it the wine itself, the people, the place, the, the whole scenario that you found yourself in? Like kind of unpack that for me because that's interesting to me. It was people, and that's what I mean by people. You know, there are so many great wines out there, but for me, it was the people who kind of put me in that position. So when, like, first incident, like, I was in Honolulu for one of the work travel, and I was only eating, you know, musubi and poke balls and whatever, for the longest time, like the very last day, I treated myself and went to this really nice restaurant and told sommelier, I'm a wine enthusiast, haha, -ha. like who drinks $10 wine from Trader Joe's. Um, but like I was interested in like learning about varietals and what have you. So I told the som, I'm an enthusiast based on what I see um, presented for the pairing. It seems a little mediocre. I, I'm open to experience. And he's like, okay, okay. This like young Asian woman walks in alone, like sits by the ocean side and like says all of that. Like, I'm sure it was pretty baffling. I knew enough to describe. And like, like I said, I think I have a pretty decent palate so I can pick up on it. And then this one dish. He brings out three glasses, okay? One giant Bordeaux glass and two Burgundy glasses. And in that giant Bordeaux glass, he pours hot water and then pours it out. And he pours 1998 Krug Champagne. What? And he goes, wines like this, you don't drink it for the bubbles, do you? And I mean, I never had Krug I didn't know what that was. So I was like, uh-huh, sure. You know, I was kind of playing along. And he poured two white burgundies, uh, which one was a cochterie, which is like the quintessential white burgundy. Another one, another one was a chevalier Mont Hachet. Yeah, you don't, yeah. you don't mess around. This is like, 
you know, the accelerated course, clearly. This is crazy. Right. And, you know, like, mind you, like, I've been drinking $20 bottles of wines. Like, I don't know any of these big names. Zero. And he goes, here, like, I'm going to leave it. He said, why should anyone drink one wine throughout the entire course when you can have three different wines for one course? And the dish was halibut with uni and brown butter beurre blanc. And I, I enjoyed it. Champagne was eye-opening. And the burgundy, I really liked the way uh, Chevalier Monhache tasted. But for the food, I thought Cochetri Merceau paired better. So I told him all of that, you know, and clearly he was impressed because he kept like topping me off. And like now that I retroactively like think about him, like, wow, that was so generous of this psalm um, to just like play along with this really young wine novice. And after all of that, he only charged me one for one ounce of Cochetri, which was $125. This is like, this is complete winning on all levels. I'm just like, I'm imagining you and what an incredible way to be like, all right, this is my new path. Like I'm in, I, you are, you are not kidding when you say you go all in on things or all out. Like this is an all in situation. I had no idea. And then I went home, I came back home to Atlanta, went to my favorite wine shop and showed him the bottles that I drank. And he started laughing out loud. I was like, <laughs> like there's no way you can find these bottles like these are, these are like collector's bottles I'm like oh so that set me like a gold standard in white wine so when I taste $45 you know Bourgogne Blanc now I know so, okay that's like 65% to what Cushdurie tasted like you know so and it kind of had helped me understand what white wine can taste like 98 Krug taught me what champagne can taste like, which was mind-blowing. So I kind of like chased that. And the moment my book came out, I went to Paris. I was meeting a bunch of, you know, food influencers and whatnot. And I met this person who was into wine. We both were drinking this wine, which sommelier blind taste tested us. Both were saying the same words. The first word, white peaches, you know, white flower. The first three words were the same at the same time. And like, I knew, wow, like we're going to be really good friends. And only to be revealed at the end of the meal that it was a Chenin Blanc by Jackie Blow. And the entire bottle was 34 euros. And just prior to having that bottle, we both paid close to like 30 euros per glass for you know some white burgundy it was like you know just the punch to your stomach kind of feeling and i came back home and i again went back to the wine shops like i want to know more about shannon and i want to drink all the shannon <laughs> so every day i drank shannon like one <laughs> bottle a day <laughs> This is not a bad problem. I almost pulled out a Shenning because I knew that about you. I knew that you liked Shenning. I almost went for that, but I had no idea that that's where kind of that interest began. I am just, I love that instant friends. And it also gives you those experiences where then you came back to Atlanta seeking that. So this is really interesting to me because the Atlanta wine scene is something that you live and breathe in now because you bring that unique twist. You bring a different palette, a different perspective on pairings. You have that here locally as well as internationally. So when you have started the pop-ups in Atlanta, how do you get the ideas for your pairings? Are you still stretching people's preconceived ideas of what pairings should be? I love breaking that stereotype. I think I am a born rebel and I always love proving people wrong. So that's basically who I am. And therefore, whenever I try to create a pairing, I will either look for whatever wine that they want to have. And, you know, nowadays, a lot of distributors and what have you can tailor to what you're asking for, which is incredibly nice. 
Um, but yeah, like I always kind of push the boundary and I definitely have affinity towards natural wines. And the reason being is because Korean food is heavily fermented. However, very different from Japanese fermentation, which is controlled fermentation using koji versus Korean fermentation is all about wild fermentation. And that is why I like natural wine, which is same concept using wild yeast for you know wild fermentation and that's why i love talking about natural wines because it goes well with the food that i know a lot about and i really want to kind of expand people's knowledge when it comes to quote-unquote pairings if you can have carbonic macerated you know gamay or pinot noir with barbecue korean barbecue which is like sweet and like soy and umami and like all of that so yeah that's where i stand when it comes to wine that sounds perfect i like my mouth waters when you mention that combination because you're talking about kind of the elements at the basic core of like the structure of the wine and the structure of the sauce or like the the flavoring that really the seasoning that stands out in the food and that's where like I, the pairings that I've had at your pop-ups, which even my mom has had your food, which is really exciting to me. She doesn't meet that many people in Atlanta and she is, <laughs> that might've been her most adventurous culinary adventure, but she loved it, um, which was really great. But uh, it was really fun for me to see the pop-ups, the way that you present the food. So obviously your relationships with the wine industry here in Atlanta has really strengthened as you are offering pairings and doing these events. So what would you say the Atlanta wine scene is like compared to other cities that you know of for wine? Because you have an interest in kind of these natural wines, you are pushing the boundaries on things that maybe aren't as available um, on retail shelves or in portfolios. So what is the Atlanta wine scene like for you when it comes to that type of style that you want? That's a very interesting question because I definitely think, and it's my personal opinion, that a lot of um, wine drinkers in Atlanta who have deep pockets are classic wine drinkers. So for natural wine that I like to drink, that kind of falls under $35, you know, $55 range, is this a very uncomfortable price point for a lot of you know, distributors or retailers to carry because many people in Atlanta, unfortunately, were not exposed to natural wine. At the time, I was doing a bunch of pop-ups. Now, it's a whole different story. A lot of people will say, oh, this wine is faulty. This wine's hazy. This wine has, like, really sour notes. And basically not understanding the definition of wild fermentation. And I know of lots of natural wines that are made like shit for like i can't find a better word for it and so and i hate when classic wine drinkers or wine educators or whoever like talk negatively about natural wine as an entire category because they clearly haven't had a well-made wine and i'm like mind you drc is natural like but i get it Ultimately, what I think I am yearning for is, I said earlier, I want to know the people who makes the wine. Kind of like the, why, the reasons why I like to go to the farmer's market and see the farmer and pick out produce, like, that gives me great joy. I think similar notion, I don't know, for me at the very least, like that's what I want when I pick up my wines. You know, there are wines that taste really good, but like I've heard so many stories that they are perpetrators of, you know, sexual assault when the opportunity, you know, is brought to them. Like I hear all these stories and I'm like, okay, now I can't really support this winemaker because yeah, the wine tastes good, but I can't support someone who does something like that and for me it's a philosophical thing i get it like it's very however it's very difficult for me to separate myself from all of that i think that that's a very respectful place to be though is that you have the opportunity to 
make that decision for yourself because you are supporting people through what you use, what you talk about, what you share at your meals, what you prepare, what you're, the ingredients that you're using, you get to pick just the same way that you are going to support wines for what they stand for, not only how they taste and all that. So good wine can be subjective to you, but you have the choice to choose what that is. So like to me, I think it's a respectful decision to know what's influencing your buying power at that point. And I know that going to the place and meeting the people is obviously super important to you. And I've loved hearing about your travels and hearing where you go. Now, I remember a very significant Instagram situation where I was sitting at the office where normally you'd be two cubicles <laughs> over, but you were off gallivanting the world. I watched your France trip. You were going to so many beautiful places. So how did you decide where to go when you're traveling abroad, you find the most incredible people to visit? How does that work? Is that through previous connections? Is it like friends of friends? Tell me how you plan your abroad trips. Because we're all wanting to travel right now anyway, so take me there. Yeah, like let's live vicariously, right? Um, like I said, people. And a lot of people I met are from Instagram. It sounds so bizarre to say, but social media has led me to incredible relationships and friendships. Like, I can't even put price tag on it. And I believe the having like similar, you know, values or like things that you care about, you build this like instant friendship. And that's what like basically led me to travel. And then like I would go and I don't just travel, but like I would cook and I would throw an event because I'm there. Like, why not? I have a one really good example. So Heidi Knudsen, she's a Korean adoptee living in London. She was a wine buyer and a general manager for Otolenghi Restaurant Group. And I've known about her, but she had no idea about me. And I knew she was very picky with people in general. Um, and I just DM'd her on her private account and said, I really want to send you my book because I wrote a cookbook with a Korean adoptee. And I know you're a Korean adoptee. Like, I just wanted to share some of the culture with you. And it was very well received because she has two children who always asks her about Korean heritage, which she not always have the answers for. And so like my cookbook helped her children to like learn more about Korean culture, which I thought was so beautiful. And through that, and then like our both um, love for natural wine like we met and we became really good friends and and like rest is history that's just one of so many examples of people that I meet on Instagram that's like that's the kind of stories I need to hear more often that's fantastic deep true personal connection that was sparked from social media yeah I really think social media helped me to understand more about natural wines that I adore like I was able to travel to Slovakia, for example, and met with these winemakers and to see all these, you know, communism reminiscence, like just around the field, just to witness that, like, whoa, weird, but we're here like for wine and for food. And we talked about, well, I talked about, like all the food that I could create with like the wines I was tasting, which was beautiful. And I long for a day that I will actually be able to execute that dream. And I think one of the more, you know, high points of my pop-up career was when I did a pop-up in Gutegau, which is like Brangelina's of natural wine. Um, they're beautiful, by the way. <laughs> I know those labels. You show those a lot. I got to get my hands on some. I'm like, for sure. Yeah, it, it is a boutique-ish wine. But once you get to know the people, you really can't say anything negative about them. Both Stephanie and Edouard, um, And I was 
at their domain, stayed with them and cooked for 40 people who traveled from all over the world, from Russia to Germany to the U.S. You know, like everyone just like, came to the domain to eat my food with their wines. And that experience was just magical. But my favorite incident that I cannot share more frequently enough was the dessert course. So all the, you know, like appetizer, you know, entrees, like we had this like pairing, like everything work, 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 like very easy. It's a day, a day before the event, the dessert, which was the black sesame seed panna cotta, um, which is also um, in everyday Korean. Hey, so, hey, we gotta plug that later. <laughs> There's a, a gentle plug right there. So the panna cotta itself is delicious, obviously. Black sesame seed is what makes it Korean. Now, we had their sweet wine. That was, you know, what we had in mind. We were drinking it together with the panna cotta. Like, all three of us are, are like, not happy with it. Stephanie's like, how about we put some grapefruit marmalade? We try that. Ooh, that makes panna cotta taste real good, but it makes wine flat, right? Oh, no. That's not good. No, that's not good at all. And then Edouard goes, like, how about we put some maybe, like, chestnut honey? Put honey on there. Ooh, it makes the wine super fruity and exciting, but the panna cotta kind of, like, sit flat. <sighs> like, also not good. Yeah. And I'm torn. I'm trying to be like diplomatic here, right? I don't want to pick someone's side. And so I said, well, how about like, we just keep, give people like options? And it was like, no, we don't give them options. You're the chef. And chef in German means boss, which I had no idea. Oh, wow. But, yeah. You are the chef. You tell them how to eat. We're not giving them options. And this is even more meaningful because Stephanie's family is a Michelin star restaurant family. So they, they, they are very deeply rooted in this like, hospitality, winemaking like, industry for a long period of time. And so like now I'm torn. It's like, okay, well, I don't like both. So maybe we just like do panna cotta by itself. Like, I don't know. And then something clicked to me and I said, is there something so regional to this Bergenland that I could incorporate? Because I love doing pop-ups that incorporate local ingredients. And both of them said, oh, like pumpkin seed oil. That's, that's very Austrian and very Bergenland. So we tried to put that on, on panna cotta and had it. All three of us instantly were like, this is it. This not only makes the wine fruity and delicious, but sesame like out there like it was perfect it was such an eye-opening experience for one dish to try all sorts of variations to you know match with the wine that we were looking for it's interesting to me that you had this spark of not settling for just well first of all that you had the idea of why not try everything um but also that you weren't going to settle for something that that discredited the value of the wine or the food. You wanted it all to work. You wanted it all to be elevated. And I'm thinking back to one of the first experiences you mentioned in Hawaii, where you tried lots of things with lot with the dish, you know, like why settle for one thing? But it brought you to the opportunity to decide what worked best. You weren't going to settle for a choice that discredited the food or the wine. Yeah, I'm not so certain with a lot of things in life, but when it comes to food, like, I'm very certain of what I like and I have zero hesitation over. And I joke with my friends, like if you like take me to like a Louis Vuitton store or like Chanel store, I would be so anxious because I know z nothing about these crafts, but you can put me in pajamas and like throw me into a Michelin star restaurant. I'll be fine because I am confident of what I know when it comes to tasting things. Yeah. I'm picturing you sitting in like French laundry with your PJs on and I'm very happy about this <laughs> image right now. It's perfect. It's so great. But that also lets you, it, it brings this approachability to your style, Songi. Like I 
think that people follow you. They are inspired by you because you have this exploratory, adventurous, like why not try something new attitude. Um, and I think it's freeing to a lot of people. It allows people to explore new ingredients, new foods, new wines that they haven't had before. And I know education is such a huge piece to you, but I think that you educate yourself a lot about wine. I love when I see you post about wines that you're drinking. You're drinking some really interesting things. You're drinking old wine a lot. You have an incredible collection of wines and I know about your cellar, but I want you to tell me a little bit of how that came about because it allows you to explore like the history of wine making through these older vintages. How did you get your hands on these? It's really interesting because I think, you know, like one cannot desire for certain things. It's just kind of like stumbled upon to me. And I was drinking a lot of quote unquote natural wines, right? And I had a great affinity for it. I was kind of getting tired with it. And then I was, I had this opportunity to taste a bunch of old wines and I thought, wow, this is interesting. Like I want to drink more. And I had opportunity to acquire a, a large cellar that had lots of old wines. And I just went with it, drank a bunch, shared bunch. And it's always important to know classics in different points of its lifespan. Kind of like learning about a person. Like a person had their youth, you know, their prime time and they get older. There's a lot of, you know, grooves and not something pretty at times. You know, there's prime time. Like I think wine is exactly like that. And I get sometimes really emotional drinking certain wines. Like wine that has turned. Like, what does that mean to me? A wine that is a little too young, like it breaks my heart. Like, what does that mean to me? I get really attached and emotional and connected to every experience I have because I think wine, just like a lot of Korean food that's fermented, that's constantly changing by the minute, you know? And the fact that I get to share the moment in that point in time is special and I think a lot of people take it for granted and more people should really be conscientious about what kind of experience they're having with food and wine because it is special. I love that that's a part of your approach to why you seek out these experiences. It's like this deeper appreciation. I know whenever I see you drinking a cool wine that you are just on next level, loving it. You could be, again, in your PJ somewhere. It doesn't really matter. I know that if you're drinking it, you're taking everything into account, the moment, the flavors, the people you're with, the place you're at. So it's really cool to learn through you and having those experiences of of yeah, you're you're taking a moment in time of that wine and its evolution. And I like how you relate that to the fermentation process as well. Super cool. The most exciting piece of what I think most recently I've seen you do for Atlanta and for women in wine and for women in food is you are a true support of people beginning their journey, looking into how they can educate themselves, opportunities. Recently you posted, speaking of your cellar and the older wines that you have, you offered fellow women interested in food and wine to reach out to you if they want to have testable things, if they're studying, you're, you were willing to have them explore wines from your collection. That is incredible. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, I definitely wanted to do that in, uh, in light of... Um, New York Times article that came out and I just remembered a lot of things that I had to go through to you know where I am it, you know professionally culinarily and all of that I definitely don't want any other woman have to suffer that to have that you know have that unique experience of drinking older wines and and having to worry about potential sexual harassment like it's very important to me having said that like when i tasted older wines it was eye-opening and like groundbreaking it was like, like that's so different than the wines that i can like get my hands on right now and 
ultimately, I ask myself, how can you buy time? You know, conceptually, you understand, but like, you can't be on a, like a time machine and like travel to 2005 and buy all the Bordeaux because now we know 2005 Bordeaux tastes amazing. <laughs> we certainly do. Or at least, you know, we have the opportunity to know that now. But you're right. It took 15 years to figure that out. Yeah. And every time I drink 2005 Bordeaux, I'm like, blown away. I can't believe this is a $10 bottle wine and it shows the way it does and like thank god for that vintage right there's certain benefits to vintage there's certain benefits to the winemaker but even in the worst of the worst vintage good winemakers constantly create good products and to me that is art and ultimately that's what i crave for and i that's what i yearn and like want to learn and like just like admire it's like all sorts of respect towards that craftsmanship but also laying low for the reality of the weather and what mother earth does to us and that's that respect too for your food knowledge and nutrition and and knowing kind of these natural processes that happen like you have that understanding that you bring to the wine world it's so special I have to ask you this because I could listen to your stories all day. I know that. I know that you have this encyclopedia of food and wine experiences, but what's next for you? Where do you go from here? You are building, I call it a little bit of an empire, whatever you want to call it. You are building a following. You have a lot of things that you're offering in terms of educational cooking videos. You're, you're doing private events where you are able to supply people. We have private clients with food and wine experiences. Hopefully someday we'll be able to gather, but what's next for Korean fusion? One day I yarn for an opportunity where I will have people who just like me, and we'll show up because they trust me and I will wine and dine them until they get really, really drunk. I wanna open what I call dinner and bed. So similar to bed and breakfast, but I want people to come for dinner, but then I don't want them to be driving. So I want them to have bed and no questions asked it is whatever's you know market tells me to make them and wines that i think would go well with the food and people will come eat enjoy have a great time sleep and the next day they can have yoga with goats or whatever learn how to make kimchi like that's my retirement goal <laughs> this is so cool. I'm thinking that you got pretty close to this concept when you did a uh, a pop-up at a strip club here in Atlanta. That was that's pretty that's kind of close. You were like heading in that direction, my friend. Yeah, I and I love breaking stereotypes. Like I told you earlier, like I want I love being a rebel. And I got I lost so many followers when I did pop-up at the strip club because I got so many people saying like, "Oh, like is it I is it really safe to eat at a strip club? Or like I've been following you for a long time, but I don't really like support that you, you know, support strip clubs, all sorts of things. And ultimately I support women in all forms and fashion. And I enjoyed it. I loved it. At times you have to be able to like laugh about like, haha, like, black sausage you know on the menu and it's just like part of like a sexual thing i don't know i'm okay with it and i like to just keep people who are okay with it i don't want to please everybody that is not who i am no. <laughs> if you know anything about me that is not who i am but i definitely have an agenda i have an agenda to break barriers and break stereotypes and doing a pop-up at a strip club is was exactly that and even then i had a baller wine pairing what was what was one of the standout dishes from that pop-up i was not able to attend and i still i can't believe you lost followers because i feel like that's it's such a unique thing and i was so proud of you and like inspired like why not like it was one of those like 
she can and she will. Like, <laughs> I just kind of felt that. But what was one of the standout pairings? Well, we had what I call big black sausage. <laughs> of course you did. Uh, with Chateauneuf du Pop, which went really well. We also, also had hot nudes. So it was a very spicy noodle dish that we had with a very cooling white wine. And they were very, very delicious. My dog is barking. Do you hear him? He's getting excited about the hot nudes. He's, he's excited. <laughs> I think that's what it is. That's incredible. I mean, you, you still, you kept true to yourself. And honestly, more of that, please, from everyone, anytime. Like being true to ourselves is, is super key. So thank you for pushing boundaries and doing that. For people that are all interested in breaking boundaries with you, where can they find you? What's the best way to find out what you're up to and where you'll be next? You, everybody can find me on Instagram at Korean Fusion or my website, thekoreanfusion.com. And I am always open for new ideas and comments. And trust me, anything other than dick pic, I'm all for it. So just, Which you do get, don't you? You get some. I get way too many. And yeah. I always have to tell them. I screenshot them first, by the way. And then I send them back another dick pic and say, are we sharing our favorite dick pics? <laughs> um, this is a warning. This is what you're going to get if this happens. Yeah. And so. But any other questions about food and wine and the life that you live? Welcome that. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insight. You're inspiring. I can't wait to see you back at the office someday. Um, but until then, <laughs> we, live, we live virtually together. Thanks for all you do for us here in Atlanta. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome job on your end too. Like this is your double career. Well, it's kind of like you said, like I, I feel like there is time. I guess during COVID, it's been a little 24-7 sometimes. But in the scheme of things, if we are multifaceted women, why not use the time that we have available to do everything we want to do? So that's kind of how I feel. I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't do both public health and wine. That's like, that is me, the combination. And I feel like you get that 100%. Oh, yeah, totally. And I cannot wait to actually not just see you at the office, but more or less like have a glass or two of wine sometime. Here's some champagne. And I think we can find a way to safely do that. Drink and <laughs> eat caviar. I think we can figure it out. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the A Cork in the Road podcast, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, and interviewing people who are changing the wine world in the Southeast and beyond. You can find more about A Cork in the Road at at A Cork in the Road on Instagram and make sure to check us out on www.acorkintheroad.com. See you soon, guys. Cheers.